Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. In part two of our discussion on breastfeeding, we're continuing our discussion with Dr. Adrian Hoyt-Austin, a breastfeeding medicine expert at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Well, let's talk about um, mothers who might be considering going back to work, and then they're going to be separating from the baby, but they want to continue to breastfeed. And so they'll be talking about using the breast pump that they got um, already. And so what about pumping one breast and feeding on the other? Is that a good way to do this or should the pumping be separate from the breastfeeding? So I think it totally depends on the situation. So for a vast majority of women who are going back to work after delivery, Usually it's at least two to three months, if not longer, after the delivery. In California, um, there's new legislation that protects a woman's right to not go back to work to at least eight weeks after the delivery. So in that time, if breastfeeding is established, it usually occurs in the first you know, six weeks of life. The most ideal way for that breastfeeding establishment to occur is without the use of pumps. Not that pumps are bad, but just because, um, you know, it's hard to feed a baby and recover from a birth and then do all of this extra stuff. And plenty of women have to do the extra stuff, but for a majority of women who are exclusively breastfeeding, they might not need to do that. So going back to work might be the first time somebody has ever used a pump before, right? And so I would say before going back to work, maybe meeting with a lactation consultant, um, and that can be done now in the era of COVID, you can actually meet with lactation consultants um, on telemedicine visits, so on video visits. And talking about how to pump, you got your electric pump, maybe it's been sitting in this nice shiny box for the last couple of months, taking it out and getting some help with setting up the equipment and making sure that the equipment fits your breasts properly so that you don't experience injury to your breasts while pumping, which is a possibility. Lena, I just saw your face (laughs) like, oh yeah, that's a possibility. (laughs) So that's kind of step one is figuring out how to use the pump. Whether or not you're pumping while feeding your child is completely up to you. Absolutely. Like I, that's something that, um, you know, most women when they're pumping with a double electric pump, both phalanges, which are the little kind of sort of triangle uh, uh, pyramid parts that go onto the breast are um, attached to the breast um, and the pumping session occurs with both breasts at the same time. There are many pumps that are single pumps. So a single manual pump, like the one we talked about earlier, where you squeeze, 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 squeeze with your hands. There are also single electric pumps, and those can certainly be used while breastfeeding. The most common thing that I hear about from other women who are breastfeeding and they're feeding the baby on one side and they're kind of catching some of that extra milk for later is a plastic device called the Haka. And it's a a little sort of like flimsy, like it has a phalange, which is that that, um, triangular pyramidal shape that goes onto the breast. And it has a little pouch that can catch the milk. 
So whenever um, women breastfeed, there's, you know, the baby um, does this sort of motion with their mouth to help instigate milk from coming down and coming out of the breast. And it's called, you know, an activation of the letdown reflex. And that letdown is what helps that full milk to come out. Then the baby will have nice, deep latch, a nice swallow, and you'll hear them drinking. But on your other breast, you might be leaking milk and be wondering, oh no, this is this precious liquid gold. I've worked so hard. How do I save this milk? And there are devices like the Hakka that can help uh, to catch that milk while you're breastfeeding a baby on one side. Can you talk a little bit about the rules for storing breast milk? So now you're getting ready to go back to work, you're pumping, or maybe as you've been at home, you've been pumping in anticipation for this event. Like how long can it be stored out in the fridge, in the freezer? So if if you're pumping breast milk um, and you're separated from your baby at work, I would just immediately say put it in the fridge. But sometimes there's some special situations where you might have pumped and you don't have immediate access to refrigeration. And in that case, use a cooler with an ice pack and it's just as good. But then there's a third scenario where maybe you don't have your cooler and maybe you don't have an ice pack and maybe you're somehow away from some sort of refrigerator. What do you do? How long can it stay out? And we know that it can safely stay out for at least four hours, maybe longer. So the at least four hours comes from a study which um, demonstrated that breast milk is actually safe to keep out at room temperature of 85 degrees up to four hours. That's warm. And the reason why breast milk can do that is it has this magic property of being bactericidal. And that just means that it kills bacteria. But that bactericidal property can fade as the breast milk starts to degrade. So keeping it in a warm spot for an excessive amount of time that can decrease its effectiveness in killing bacteria. And keeping it in the fridge for more than four days can also decrease its effectiveness of killing bacteria. So breast milk is different from the milk that we buy at the store where that milk has been pasteurized and the bacteria has been killed. So it has a very different expiration date than fresh milk that's pumped from your body. You can also store it in the fridge, um, deep, deep freezer, uh, up to a year is fine. Most women aren't going to be storing breast milk that long. I don't ever want to like give this idea that you must have some sort of freezer stash before going back to work because your body just needs to make whatever your baby needs to eat. You don't have to make for a future army of babies. So worrying about storing beyond 12 months, maybe donate it to your local milk bank. What are some strategies that we can give moms for going back to work and so advocating for a workplace that's friendly to mothers who are pumping? I think that there's two uh, sort of stark differences. There are moms who are going back to a breastfeeding friendly environment, and then there are moms who are going back to a non-breastfeeding friendly environment. And for our moms who are going to a non-breastfeeding friendly environment, so that's a mom who maybe is not, their employer is not complying by laws that are set by the federal government and also by the state of California, that moms have the right to breaks to pump whenever they please. Moms have a right to be able to be off of work for eight weeks before going back to work. And so these are sort of legal um, things that we can advocate for our patients and we can tell them, hey, this is how the state of California backs you up with employment law and this is how the federal government backs you up with employment law. And then for moms who are returning back to work in a breastfeeding friendly environment, which is a lot of um, a majority of moms who are going back to work, it's really talking more about like the logistics of breastfeeding while at work. So a lot of moms elect to pump while they are at work. And so what I tell moms, I'm like, use your pump as often as your baby normally feeds at home. So in, in the final weeks of maternity leave, 
reminding moms during the day to maybe write down when their baby normally eats. And that way they get a sense of like, hey, every day my baby wakes up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, has a feed, and then feeds again at 8, 11, 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. And so that's kind of your pump plan for the day. Um, the other uh, thing for especially first time parents who are returning to work is just talking about how important it is if there are, if there are two um, parents at home or if there's a mom living with her extended family, just really leaning on your family to support you as you go back to work. Because suddenly you've just been kind of feeding your baby and recovering from your delivery and now you're ready to go back and now you have this mountain of like pump supplies and bottles and all of this stuff that uh, really takes, you know, a village um, or at least uh, a couple of people to help prepare every day. And just reminding families that that preparation for feeding the baby is really a family activity. It's not a one person activity. Um, and then sort of just like tips and tricks. I always tell people, you know, always have two of everything. The worst thing is to get all the way to work. I mean, now, you know, with COVID, a lot of us are working from home, but um, let's say you're working far from your baby or far from home and you get to your work and then suddenly like one of the little valves that's in your pumping kit tears and you don't have any extras, it's not gonna work at all. And so just having extra supplies or a backup manual hand pump just in your pumping bag can be really helpful. That is a great, great tip. So let's say now we're at a year old or maybe even older and you want to stop breastfeeding. <laughs> what are some tricks that you give to parents to make that process easier, both for the baby as well as for the mom and engorgement and all of that? Great question. So the World Health Organization recommends breastfeeding for as long as it's a mutually enjoyable and beneficial <laughs> activity for both mother and baby. So the decision to wean, suddenly lots of people who aren't mother or babies will have lots of opinions about <laughs> when you should wean. And so I just tell mom, <laughs> stick to your guns. Whatever you want to do is right for you. If a, a mother decides that she wants to wean before her child is ready, um, then uh, separation can be helpful. Um, and so uh, before weaning, um, kind of like changing some behaviors around breastfeeding might be beneficial. And again, this is all advice that's coming from sort of like our clinical experience as pediatricians. I don't believe, um, not that I know of anyone's done a real study looking at this, <laughs> but in terms of clinical experience, sort of like changing bedtime habits might be an important first step. So a lot of breastfed babies, um, you know, as they get into toddler years, might still want to have to breastfeed before going down for a nap or before going to bed. And a lot of women, as they slowly wean down, might stop breastfeeding during the day for the most part, but might still be doing those nap time and bedtime breastfeeds. And that's fine if it's fine for the mom and the baby. But if the mom wants to completely stop and not do any of that anymore, I might recommend that she start with stopping those habits. So having dad or partner put baby to bed. 
Yeah, you don't want to make it so abrupt for the baby or or for the mom. You it, it it's a process, right? It's become part of the routine. We talk about routines so much. And so by slowly modifying your routine, so now mom's not there at bedtime, it's just dad, you know, and then you can go to the nap and then you can go. It makes it a lot easier for the infant. Yeah, and, and most kids do naturally wean. Um, you know, I call it like baby-fed weaning, where they'll stop being um, so interested in breastfeeding during the day. But every kid's different. So certainly if a mom's like, hey, you know, I want to breast stop breastfeeding as soon as possible. Just what we can chat about in our office with her is reminding her that it's a slow process. And the reason why, it's not just the behavior, it's also like if she abruptly stops breastfeeding, then there's um, a risk of um, sort of like her breast filling up with milk and um, not being able to express that milk can sometimes lead to something we call mastitis, which is an infection in the breast associated with fevers and redness and pain. And before mastitis comes, it's a feeling of engorgement or just having very full, um, firm, painful breasts. So that's something to kind of warn moms that's a possibility if, you, if you're weaning too quickly. I'm reminded of my friend, Andrea, who was breastfeeding one of her sons, and he continued to breastfeed. And then um, one day, he was about five years old, he was outside, and he was playing, and he comes inside, and he says, Mom, I'd like a snack, and he breastfeeds, and then he finishes, and he says, Thanks, Mom, and then he runs outside, and she thought, this is getting too weird. I, I think I think we're going to stop. Yeah, exactly. You know, she came to that point where breastfeeding was no longer working for her. I think, you know, nowadays we're so, I mean, we being like us in the United States are so, so kind of rigid about these rules of breastfeeding, right? Like, oh, you should exclusively breastfeed your baby for six months and not exclusively after that. And then, or maybe you could feed your best, breastfeed your baby up to 12 months, but not after that. But there's some really interesting anthropologic information that we have just from, you know, humans as we've existed across the previous millennia, that it's totally uh, normal for kids to breastfeed up to age four. Like that's been, I don't know how anthropologists do this, but, you know, being able to study the teeth of these children, we have that information. So I'd say, you know, if, if you feel like you're breastfeeding longer than you should, there's no health detriment. There's only health benefits. But I totally empathize with that sort of feeling like maybe this is enough. Maybe we're done now. So are there any conditions um, that mothers shouldn't breastfeed that would make it inappropriate or dangerous to breastfeed? Yeah, so sadly, there are some, um, you know, very sad medical conditions or chronic illnesses that can make it um, dangerous to breastfeed. So um, as pediatricians, one thing that we think about is a baby who's born with galactosemia, um, which is a condition that makes it unsafe for them to breastfeed because they just can't metabolize or process the milk safely. And then um, the rest of the conditions are usually in moms. So that's going to be moms who are living with HIV. It is safer in the United States and in developed countries for moms to feed formula um, made with clean water than it is to give breast milk because there is a small risk for transmitting HIV through breast milk. Other conditions are, you know, moms who are struggling with illicit drug use. So if moms are using uh, drugs like methamphetamines, cocaine, it's very dangerous um, to use while breastfeeding. So we, uh, we do not recommend breastfeeding in those situations. Um, moms who have T-cell lymphoma, and, you know, one super rare thing, especially in the United States, um, but certainly in, in other countries a few years ago, especially in Africa, Ebola virus um, is a contraindication to breastfeeding. Well, you know, like you said, a lot of these are really rare. And so 
for the vast majority of women, breastfeeding will be okay. And if you have any of these conditions, your OB and your pediatrician will be aware and, and guide you on what the next steps are. As a pediatrician in my office in the in the initial days, nipple and breast pain has to be one of the most common complaints. And they're kind of like macerated and raw. And I know that has a lot to do with the latch and kind of getting, you know, getting your groove with your baby together and the wide enough latch. But what are your recommendations for helping moms through that? Are there any creams? Are there, I know technique is going to be the biggest. Yes, Dr. Lena, you hit the nail on the head. So te technique is the biggest part. So the, the whole reason why the, the breasts get raw or there's injury to the nipple is because of a latch that is suboptimal. And so when we think about it, when a baby latches onto the breast, step one is making sure that the baby has a wide enough mouth so their mouth will open nice and wide and they will latch onto the breast over the nipple onto the areola. And if those three things aren't happening, it always results in nipple trauma to mom and it's incredibly painful. And that pain will last throughout the entire breastfeeding session. There's all women after delivery when they're breastfeeding, there is some chafing that occurs um, or, or just what I refer to as nipple stretch. It's kind of like your breasts are getting used to breastfeeding again. And there can be some pain, some sharp pain in the first minute or so when baby is instigating that letdown. But that sort of discomfort doesn't cause nipple trauma. And it goes away after about 45 seconds to a minute. Many women don't experience this at all with an ideal latch, but certainly sometimes even with an ideal latch, there can be some discomfort with that nipple stretch. But Dr. Lena, what you're talking about in your office, what you're seeing is, is nipple trauma from, from that imperfect latch. So what can we do in our office? Well, we gotta get a good oral assessment of the baby and a good idea of how breastfeeding's going. So taking a look at the baby's mouth, feeling the mouth with our hands, and feeling the baby suck. Um, usually it's nice and coordinated, but sometimes they can just be chomping, chomping, chomping. That usually improves with time. Another thing we can look at is something called tongue tie or ankyloglossia um, to see if that is related potentially to the nipple trauma. And um, finally, we do want to have a witnessed breastfeed in our office. So we wanna encourage moms to hang out in the room. Maybe you're gonna go see another patient. Maybe you're gonna come back. And when mom's ready to breastfeed, if you can take a look at that breastfeed and checking for how deep the latch is and if you're hearing sustained gulps and swallows. And then us teaching moms what to look for at home. Definitely, um, if I am with a family and the mom is saying, like, it still hurts, something doesn't feel right, take the baby right off. You can break the seal by inserting your pinky into the corner of the baby's mouth when the baby's latched to the breast to try to break that seal. We don't want to have baby pulled off of the breast because that will cause additional nipple trauma to mom. So for creams... So I know we, we talked about earlier that chafing that occurs for all women after having a baby, just because you're kind of getting used to like having the baby latched to the breast. Lanolin cream can be quite helpful. Expressing a few drops of breast milk and putting it onto the nipple and letting the nipples dry open to air 
also helpful. There are like nice little gel cooling pads that you can buy over the counter at Target, Walmart, CVS. Medela makes some. Lansino also makes some. And they're these little like jelly pads. They look like a little circle. They go right over the nipple. You can stick them in the freezer. And they form a nice sort of cooling barrier after feeding the baby if you're, you know, needing to get dressed after the baby. Certainly, if, if you're having extreme redness, spreading redness, any abnormal discharge, talking to your doctor earlier rather than later is important because it can also be signs of a skin infection. So one thing I do want to discuss is donor breast milk, because as pediatricians, we know that there are tons of benefits for donor breast milk. We give it to premature babies. Um, But then there's also, because like you mentioned, there's a pressure for families to give breast milk that in some cases when people are not able to breastfeed for whatever reason, or um, then they look to potentially buying donor breast milk for their full-term infant. So I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a rundown on, on this and what your thoughts are. Donor breast milk is available through commercial and university milk banks across the country. Here in Northern California, we have, I think of it as a donor milk consortium. It's um, down in San Jose is a mother's milk bank. And there are milk donor milk drives across Northern California to supply the mother's milk bank. And the mother's milk bank supplies NICUs across Northern California and also newborn nurseries. So for, for short term supplementation of otherwise exclusively breastfed newborns. I believe it's perfectly reasonable and should be standard of care to supplement with donor breast milk. However, the logistics of doing that are challenging because, you know, sending a mom who's here in Sacramento down to San Jose to buy breast milk from the mother's milk bank, which you can do, is challenging, right? She's just recovering from her birth and then coming back. However, for families who are not breastfeeding for whatever reason, there can be families who adopt babies, can be families who, you know, tried breastfeeding and it didn't work out and they are electing to purchase donor human milk. I think that, you know, medically and scientifically, that's a perfectly fine thing to do for that baby. But I do think it does bring up some very complex ethical issues in terms of, you know, how much donor milk one family should get versus the other. But I do know that the Mother's Milk Bank and other milk banks around the country, it's not as if they are giving away hospitals milk. This is an extra pool of safe donor milk that, that can be purchased. That milk has all been tested for infections, other things. So, but buying milk off of like Craigslist or the internet, that is not a good idea. It's certainly fraught with risk, right? So we taught, we talked earlier about the contraindications to breastfeeding. One of those being HIV and um, HIV can be acquire through a variety of uh, situations, you know, maybe, you know, most commonly we think about um, needle sharing or people who are having sex without using condoms. Is, uh, those are all ways to acquire HIV if you, if you have HIV and pass it along to a partner. And if you are purchasing donor human milk, or I wouldn't even call it donor human milk, I would just be, call it, you know, somebody else's breast milk from online. Um, there's not really any way to confirm 
you know, if it's been tested and if it's safe to use. The other thing I would worry about is actually, you know, like who whose milk is this? Is it really breast milk? Has it been cut with other stuff? Is it diluted? Um, so something that, that your pediatrician might chat with you about is if you are ever using formula, it's very important to measure the water and the formula um, powder very carefully because if we're not measuring that correctly, it can lead to electrolyte imbalance um, in babies. And I would be worried about that too with breast milk, you know, if somebody's kind of selling their, their breast milk online. And you also mentioned the storage, and we don't know how if it's been stored correctly. I know, yeah, and we don't know, you know, if that. So let's say you have, you know, a mom who maybe has an oversupply of breast milk. Otherwise, seems like a nice, normal mom. Well, we don't know, you know, her medical history. We also don't know, like, did she have a couple of beers before pumping that milk? Did she have? And and that's perfectly reasonable, right? It's her milk. It was her life. It's her body. But, um, you know. You, trusting somebody to the point to give that to your baby, I think that there's a lot of ambiguity and, and risk assessment that you would have to do before making that decision. Well, I appreciate you talking us through that. And I think that a milk bank would be an appropriate option if you were unable to to breastfeed yourself and really felt strongly about giving breast milk to your infant. So that sounds like a great option. We have talked about so much good information today. I have learned a ton, which is always my favorite thing about doing this. So do we want to summarize today's topic? So we talked about how to plan for separation from the baby um, and issues relating to going back to work and how important it really is to have policies in place at work to make sure that mothers can pump at the workplace. Definitely. We also talked about the rules for storing breast milk. We want to make sure that it's safely stored. Mm -hmm. And it can be out for up to four hours. Otherwise, it should be in the fridge or the freezer. And um, we also talked about um, when is the appropriate time to wean and that it's different for every mother-baby pair. Mm -hmm. And we also talked about complications. So we talked about nipple pain, what might be causing that, and what are some strategies to reduce that pain and ways to overcome some of the challenges with breastfeeding. And lastly, we talked about donor breast milk, when it's appropriate, when it might not be. And that reminds me of a joke. <laughs> what? What did the baby say to its mother after breastfeeding? What? Thanks for the memories. <laughs> there were a lot of good breastfeeding jokes, huh? Uh-huh. Yes. Again, we'd like to thank Dr. Adrian Hoyt-Austin, a newborn breastfeeding medicine specialist here at UC Davis Children's Hospital, for joining us on this episode. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 